Before we get started, okay, whatever. <laughs> just kidding, we're going to get this. It's okay, you're good, Dan. Um, I just want to point out something about what uh, we have here. Um, all right, so everything on the left is what it is that we're changing. And then, yeah, on the right is what's there. And what's highlighted is the change parts. So if you have any questions when you're looking at this, go ahead and make sure you, you ask and we can talk about it more, um, what we're doing exactly with all of this. Um, again, it, there's a reason why I think it's wise for us to take that whole week before we vote on it to, to just dedicate to prayer and fasting if, if, if you feel led to fast. Um, it's kind of a big deal for the church, and, but you know, if, if we're unified and if the Lord wills it, then it's what we need to do in our time. So again, if you have any questions about what it is that Betsy did here, just make sure you go ahead and ask me and then I'll let you know. Um, all right, with that, I need my Bible and my sermon. If you would, now that I've distracted all of you, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 33. And as we continue through Isaiah, um, I believe we're actually halfway through now, which is really exciting. Well, it's not exciting. I really, I, has anyone else enjoyed Isaiah? I've enjoyed Isaiah. I think it's so timely. Um, <laughs> far more timely than we realize uh, or have thought maybe when we've read through it by ourselves at times. Um, but he is, and he's, he, he is reminding us that there is one true power in the world, in the universe, and that is the eternal God. Um, and without him, there is no power. So as we continue through Isaiah, just that constant reminder for us is God is so great and none of these other powers are great. Um, so before we begin, we'll go ahead and look at our maps because I want everyone, uh, by the end of this, I want you all to know who was the threat during <laughs> Isaiah's time. And it was Assyria. Um, and back then you basically had these different nations who would go ahead and conquer the known world at the time. So you had... Um, even before the Assyrians, you had Sumeria at one point, you had the Hittites. But now it's Assyria, and Assyria is conquering everybody. Um, and then if we go to the next slide there, yep, and then Assyria, you see how they've actually gone all the way. They've even, in a way, they conquered Egypt by defeating their armies. So that's a pretty expansive empire when you really consider how much that they did end up conquering. Um, and then the last slide shows us Judah and Israel at the time. As we remember... After the death of Solomon, there was a nice civil war between Judah and Israel um, where ultimately they, they decided to go their separate ways. And if anyone remembers, Israel was not very faithful at all. And they ended up getting conquered by Assyria by this point. And so really all that's left is Judah down here um, with, at this point, it's King Hezekiah. Um, and that's kind of where we're at historically and what we're looking at as we go through. So now we'll start with verses 1 through 6. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself has not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts reap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. 
He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. So chapter 33 begins with what the ESV behind me um, says, or translates as ah, but this could also be translated as woe. This concept has been uh, against the Israelites for their faithlessness throughout the last five or so chapters. Now, however, it is going to be against the destroyer and the traitor or the betrayer. Um, The big question is, who is this in reference to? There is a temptation to take this metaphorically as referencing the devil or evil in general. However, historically, it makes more sense to relate it to Assyria. They had by this point already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and many other nations had fallen under their dominion. When it comes to the traitor, it likely represents the time when Hezekiah had offered a tribute to Sennacherib so that the Assyrians would not attack Jerusalem. In the end, the Assyrians still invaded Judah anyway. So, indeed, the Assyrians were well known for betrayals when conquering other nations. Um, and so I think that's what's really in view there. But if you want to take it further, you can. Because it's, it's the acts themselves that kind of describe this. Um, but Assyria is, I think, the big threat. Still, Assyria, we find, will be overrun. They will not destroy forever, nor will they betray forever. In the end, they are just like any other nation, which rises and falls in the sands of time. Yet Isaiah and the Judeans are still in flux because they are experiencing the power of Assyria presently. As such, either Isaiah or the people under Hezekiah request the Lord's grace. They may recognize by this point that there will be no help apart from the Lord. Isaiah is sure that there is no no other compared to God. Indeed, just the noise of God's approach is enough to cause the enemies of God's people to flee. When he stands, the nations, Isaiah declares, they are dispersed. They, they flee. Um, what is left over once the Lord has scattered the nations is spoil. There may be a connotation with the caterpillar and locust of the small taking over that which once was large. Um, historically, this often occurs. When nations fell, others would kind of swoop in, take over the remnants, and then become large themselves. And we saw this with, um, I'm going to go off topic here, with Babylon, right? Because at, at, we find through Assyria's conquering that they conquered Babylon and they conquered Babylon. I mean, they destroyed that city. But who rose after Assyria? The Babylonians. Um, they're the ones who ended up taking over everything once Assyria started to crumble. Um, so there, there's a sense in which even the small end up becoming large because of their, their destruction of the large. Um, as it is, God cannot be scattered, though. He is above all others. He is not like the nations who can be scattered, nor is he like the peoples who flee. No, God, he dwells on high. Zion, Jerusalem, will be filled with justice and righteousness because of this. What was once lacking among the people of God, God himself will provide. Not only this, but he will be the foundation for the people. He is the bringer of salvation, the bringer of wisdom and knowledge. All that we come to know is founded upon the knowledge of God. Isaiah speaks the wisdom literature when he recognizes that the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Knowledge of God naturally leads to fearing him, and in fearing him, we can properly properly know him and ourselves. And so we see why it's so important for the the wisdom literature there. Now we come to verses 7 through 12. 
Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The travelers ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bash, Bashan, and Carmel shake off their leaves. And now... I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. All right. So Isaiah reflects on the situation with the Judean people. That their heroes cry in the street recognizes their brave military who upon seeing the might of Assyria can do nothing but cry over the onslaught. The envoys of peace, those who believed that they had slated Assyria's uh, wrath with the gift, return only to realize Assyria's thirst for blood will not be slated. If the enemy has come through Judah, then it would make sense that the highways would be laid waste. The highway represents safety while traveling through the land. Yet no caravans or others would be willing to travel now that the enemy has come. Assyria had gone against their prior commitments of leaving Judah and Jerusalem in peace. As such, the covenant is literally broken with Judah. Such a force reneging on their prior commitments will lead only to um, disregard for human life. They have no intention of peace, only cruelty. That the land mourns and languishes may either be literal or metaphorical. Regardless, Isaiah describes four areas, Lebanon, Sharon, uh, Bashan, and Carmel. Each of these areas were fruitful, yet now we find them to be barren. They no longer had the bounty they once possessed. Isaiah and the people of Judah must see all that is concerning and have some measure of fear. Yet it is exactly in this moment that the Lord arrives, so to speak. Now that the people have no possible hope of salvation from themselves, from other nations, from the land, nothing. Now that the people are utterly hopeless, now when all is lost, now God will arise. He will lift himself up and be exalted. Reflections of Isaiah 6 where God is depicted as the one power high and lifted up. Some wonder who the you are in verse 11. Being unspecified, it seems the most reasonable explanation is the destroyer. Isaiah has just said that when the Lord lifts himself up, the nations scatter. As such, the Assyrians are in view. Therefore, that the Assyrians conceive chaff and give birth to stubble implies their power is nothing in comparison with God. Their own breath is what will consume them. This is in stark contrast to the Assyrians believing that they will be the ones to devour. Instead, they will be devoured by themselves. Indeed, this may be a reflection of the way the Assyrians blaspheme God as well in their attempt to destroy Jerusalem. As such, their arrogance further led to their destruction. Indeed, the Assyrians will not be able to withstand the judgment to come against them. While the gates of Jerusalem... Uh, While at the gates of Jerusalem, the Assyrians will feel the fire, so to speak, and will eventually become consumed by it as they are dispersed. And we're going to find that actually quite literally happens um, further on. Now we're going to do verses 13 through 16 and close out for today. Here you are, here who are left, you who are left, wow, you who are far off. (laughs) 
<laughs> what have I done? And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sometimes the ESV translates a, a little too literally. Um, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Who, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So all are called to take into account God and his accomplishments. Proximity does not matter to the events, whether near or far off. All people are called to recognize the might and the power of God and what he has done. Isaiah has continued to critique his own people for their faithlessness. They have been led by fools and have become foolish themselves. The sinners in Zion then will be afraid as the godless fear. In seeing God and experiencing his awesome power, the result is always the same, humility. The response is similar to Isaiah's own response in encountering God in chapter 6. A very, he always goes back to this in chapter 6, if you haven't noticed. But they recognize their own guilt, and their guilt causes them to reflect on God's all-consuming fire. Indeed, who can stand against him? Who can stand against this righteousness, this God who is so full of flame? Isaiah provides a response. He answers it, basically. The one who is able to withstand the fire of judgment is the one who is righteous. The one who is not defined by the culture, but by living according to God. Those who speak what is good and true, not those who speak lies. Those who will not gain wealth through oppression, and those who cannot even fathom taking a bribe. Those who will not even consider the shedding of innocent blood by murdering others. Indeed, those who will not look upon evil. This does not mean that the individual does not see the evil in their midst um, as though they are oblivious to the ills in society and injustices. No, instead it is a recognition that they will not take part of the evil themselves. Such an individual will be able to withstand the fire. Why? Because they will be seeking to emulate God's own character. Thus they will dwell on the heights. As we reflect on verse 5, this is where God is. The defense against the world is sure here. Um, nothing can penetrate the defenses of such an individual since the defense is God. Indeed, such an individual will be given all that is necessary for survival, for they will have bread and water. Yes, such an individual, they will be sustained. All right. So the main point of these verses are to show the mighty nature of God. The enemy, the destroyer, the betrayer stands against the people of God. Yet God is high and lifted up. Because of this, the enemy will not stand. Instead, the enemy will be destroyed by the power of God. This destruction has one result. Awe and terror for those who witness the greatness of God's devastation. In this way, the people are able to learn what is good, what is right, by seeking God's character and emulating it in their own lives. So in today's text, we experience two facts about reality. There is both pain and healing. There is both sorrow and joy. 
When it comes to our experiences, as well as the experiences of all those who have come before us, it is easy to see these instances of incredible darkness, as well as incredible light. In today's text, we see the darkness for what it is. The Assyrians are and represent the darkness which seeks to destroy. They were a nation which overwhelmed others like a flood, causing incredible sorrow wherever they went. They were powerful conquerors over this region of the world. And all the peoples of this region quaked when they were set in the Assyrian sites. Imagine, if you will, what that would be like. Imagine the utter destitution, knowing that one is altogether powerless to fight against such a massive foe. This was the case with the people of Judah. They thought they could placate the Assyrians by offering a tribute. Yet we find that this ultimately accomplished nothing. It ultimately accomplished the sword rather than peace. So it is the way of the world when we consider it. The darkness of the world offers us peace. And the only way to placate it, according to them, is with a tribute. That tribute may be monetary, but it might also be our views, our understandings, our perceptions. It claims that if we should only agree with this much, then they'll leave us alone. What happens in the end? Well, our culture shows the ramifications of paying a tribute to darkness. In the end, it only leads to a corrupted understanding where we lose all freedom. Where if we are in disagreement, we are branded, scorned, and hated. It doesn't matter if yesterday, for example, you fought on the world's side. If you disagree today, you are nothing but scum. Why is this? Because the darkness, the world, is never satisfied with some or part. No, the world always wants more. It wants to devour us in its ways, forcing us to agree with it. It will not be enough to give up lip service. No, we must bend the knee. We must submit. And if we will not submit by choice, then it will force us to submit. Again, our culture says much to this. Unfortunately, we are in a state much like the ancients. We have seen what occurs when darkness seems to be all around us. We are now facing old threats anew. Recently, it was put out how in certain school districts in the U.S., the students were forced to pay reparations by reciting prayers to ancient Aztec deities. And we talked about this previously. And by doing so, it would be denouncing the replacement of the early American deities with Christianity. Paganism. For many generations, we have had the luxury of living in a society which was dominated by Christian thought. Now, however, however we find ourselves against the ropes. Now we find, again, paganism in our schools. And not only there, many are beginning to turn to crystals, believing them to hold elemental powers in this world, worshiping sticks and rocks instead of the living God. Yes, this is what we are witnessing outside of our walls. And one of the reasons it is happening is because we have failed miserably. We have been deceived just as those in the past. We have relied too heavily upon the powers of the world in order to combat the world. We have believed our envoys would be enough to placate the world, not realizing the world is not satisfied with some, but it demands all. We are in a dark night currently. Our culture is deteriorating Too many churches have lost their prophetic voice. Our people are being misled by false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. What can be done when this is the case? What can we do? Thankfully, we know something important. 
Each of us, individuals, have already experienced this personally. We have all recognized that we are not enough. We have all come to the conclusion that the power, the wisdom, the knowledge we possess is not enough to save us. We know this because God has sent us on Jesus Christ and he has scattered our darkness by his light. Yes, the Lord has come. He has arisen and he has revealed himself to us. He has bared his holy arm against sin and unrighteousness. We know this because we have experienced his grace, his mercy, his peace in our own lives. As such, what is it to God that so many are deceived? What is it to God that the world appears to have so much power? The nations scattered before him. The peoples flee. It was the case back then, so it is the case now. The Lord often comes to us when we are at our darkest moment. Why? Because it is in this moment that we recognize our utter dependence upon one who is much greater than us. As such, when we see the darkness around us, it should cause each of us not to fear what we see in front of us, but to turn and see who is high and lifted up. For the one who is is far greater, far stronger, and far more terrifying than anything we encounter today. Because the truth is, the pagan deities are false gods. If they have power, it is nothing in comparison with God. Those with power in the world today, while they may even be more powerful than us as individuals and even as churches, compared to God, they are, have no power. They are instead like chaff, which is easily blown away by the wind when compared to the awesome power of God. The flames around us are temporary. God, however, is an eternal flame. This should fill us with true dread. Not a kind of fear we experience when something stronger than us arrives, but a dread which causes us to realize this thing, this God, could obliterate us out of, ex- out of existence should he choose to. That is true power. It is this which Isaiah saw and quaked. It is this which the people of Judah witnessed standing against the Assyrians, and they feared. For what can stand against such a flame? The answer is found in this passage. Righteousness. Living according to God's holy character. This is the way to withstand the flame. Some will wonder though, how we know that this is enough? How do we know that living in accordance with the will of God, in righteousness and justice, and turning from evil, can withstand the perfect fury of God? Well, we have an answer even for this. For Jesus Christ stood firm in righteousness and justice, and he turned from evil, and he was crushed in death, but arose in life. He who is has overcome. In other words, the only way it is possible for us to overcome the darkness, and the only way we are able to stand in the light, is by God's incredible grace. He has given us his grace by revealing himself to us, by allowing us to know him, And knowing him, we have what we are told today, stability. What is the manner of this stability? It is all of reality. In him we find purpose, meaning, and value. As Isaiah says in verse 6, He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Knowing God. By seeing him as he is, and knowing his will, knowing his character, knowing his person, it causes us to have stability in this life, to understand salvation, to have wisdom, and to have knowledge. I know that right now, 
everything is looking incredibly bleak and dark. But we can have hope in this. Our God is still seated high and he is lifted up. Not only this, but he has moved in the world, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live, die, and rise again into immortality so that we would find a salvation which cannot be moved. Our peace and assurance will never be found in this world. The concepts or the beliefs therein. No, the only peace we can find, true and perfect peace, is God himself. In the dark of our night, he is our eternal light. And I think that this pretty obviously leads to the gospel. (laughs) Isaiah. Seeing it far before anyone else did. Um, And with the gospel, we see the reality of all that we find with our experiences. And that is that God is the origin. We talked about it with the kids today, didn't we? He is eternal. He is the first cause. He is the one from which all other things come. There was nothing before God. He is and always has been and he always will be. And he who is and has been and always will be. This God chose to create humanity in his image. And that's a wonderful thing to consider. Because we all then have dignity, sanctity, and worth to life. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are a human being, you have this. It doesn't matter your race or your gender. God loves you as he created you in his image. And that's a beautiful thing. You have dignity, you have sanctity, and worth to life because of God. Not because the world tells you, not because nature tells you, but because God created you in his image. But the problem is we find throughout Isaiah... And that's that God's people, his image bearers, sin. And they seek other powers to lead them to the heights. They trust in their own reason and wisdom in order to lead them to greater and greener pastures, only to find barren deserts every single time. We see it in our own culture as we try to define justice based upon all these false premises. And what does it lead to? Further brokenness, further destruction, further uh, separation between peoples. It should be breaking our hearts what happens in society. Because we see people who truly want answers. The problem is, is that they're finding false answers in front of them. And when you follow false answers and you follow false deities, it leads to destruction every time. Now the problem is though is that we're also very, very guilty of that. Because prior to coming to Christ, we were like that. We were either living for ourselves without any care in the world about God's glory and therefore mocking God with our existence or we were believing things which were not true about God. Either way, we're guilty. Either way, we spurned God. Either way, we deserve to be in his eternal fire. But, as we find today, there's hope. Because God is righteous. And his son Jesus Christ is righteous and just and wonderful and filled with all goodness. And he came and he lived and he died and he rose again in time, space, history and flesh. And he was vindicated because God raised him from the dead. He is the true son of God. He is God. And we rejoice because we now know 
that all of what Isaiah had been saying, trust in God, it'll be fine. Trust in God, will be fine. Trust in God, it'll be fine. In Jesus, we see it's true. Because he was the only one who did it. And we, today, look on Christ and we say, thank you, Lord. Because we could not do it on our own. In Isaiah 33, even now, we're seeing this truth. That we are not enough. That our stability must come from something beyond us. It needs to come from God himself. And in Christ, we find it. And we rejoice about it. And where does it lead? Well, righteousness leads to good things for our society. It leads to good things for us as individuals. Better relationships with God is good. And that will overflow to everyone around us. And even to our society outside the doors of here. And even to the nation. But it requires us to be faithful ourselves. We can't expect to do what we need to do in the world with the world's wisdom. We have to use our wisdom, which is the wisdom from God. And then in the end, though, let's say that we do get crushed. Jesus got crushed, right? Even if we should try to fight against all the injustices in the world, it's not guaranteed that the world's going to listen, is it? We know that because it happened with Jesus. He fought against it. He still died. So what happens with us even though we fight against it all? Does it guarantee that we're going to be successful? No. But what we do find in Jesus is that we have life. And we can withstand the flame through him. And so that in the end, while we may have a short time here, which is full of pain sometimes, which is frustrating at times when you see the world and you're like, this is the answer. And they're like, no, it's not. We have an eternity to enjoy our God forever because of what Christ has done. So as we continue forward and as the church continues forward and as we as individuals go forward, let's cling fast to the gospel. Let us remember what the ancient prophets spoke about concerning Christ. And let us remember, our God is high and lifted up. None can make him move. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is truly high, who is truly lifted up, who is immovable. You are eternal. And so, Lord, as we experience the things of today, you have known about all these things. You know the hearts of humans. And you know how wicked we can be and how easily deceived we can be. So, Lord, we ask that you would cleanse our hearts so that way we cannot be moved by anything other than you, the immovable one. Lord, let us be able to know what righteousness and justice is by your character alone. And let us not be deceived by anything. You, Lord, are truly great. You are truly mighty. And you are truly worthy of all of who we are. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.